0: What we want to do, um, because we are excited to have Harriet with us this morning, Um, and uh, this isn't like a transition to a new thing, but a continuation of the same conversation. Uh, We kind of want to talk about what we we looked at last week with Acts, ask a question that we can all uh, answer, and then uh, Harriet's jumping in. So um, the three things that we looked at when we talk about uh, Acts, is we're, we're uh, going to see illustrated over the next several weeks that we go through this book that one church is political, um, and that Jesus is Lord is a political statement. Um, it's, it's also a theological statement, but if it was just going to be a theological statement, then it would be Jesus is God, but Jesus is Lord is a direct reaction to the Caesar is Lord, um, just kind of common usage of that time. Um, it's not partisan. It's not trying to say that one party is better than another, but it's deeply political in how we see and care for one another. The next is that church is evolving. There's changes in the food laws and Gentile inclusion that we're going to see all throughout this book of Acts. And so church is constantly changing and evolving our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with God. Uh, If you're not growing and evolving, then it is quite possible that you're not present um, to to the world and to what God is doing. And lastly, church is communal. Um, I know we're gonna look at, at today the way that there was food was distributed, the way that the community saw and helped um, with one another. And there are these great speeches where we see this historical connection that we stand in a lineage of a, a group of people throughout history that has understand God and understood our link to one another in really profound ways. And so especially using that last one, churches communal, here's the question to start off with this morning. What ways does individualism work against community? What are examples of how individualism works against community? Um, And I think this question is especially salient in the United States of America where individualism is in our DNA. Um, and in moments like these, where things are literally on fire around us, there is a desire to pull inward and to say, what is my individual rights? What do I need? Um, and so in what ways does that fight against the community? I'm interested for um, for Sarah, for um, Harriet. What are some of your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I was I was thinking um maybe another thing that i thought uh, it just occurred to me because i i saw K- Leroy's comment from last week when he asked where's the church as family and maybe if we kind of keep that in that kind of uh metaphor in place too or that kind of relationship with individualism how does it pop up in family because you might be familiar with that but that kind of um uh, place then maybe the church you know how how individualism affects um, community might be more clear. But the one thought that I had was um, I think individualism says that I want to maintain my comfort zone and not have conflict. <laughs> um, and so as soon as I feel threatened, uh, uh, individualism says that I am going to disengage or stay superficial um, or find another comfort group. That's me. <laughs> mm.
2: Yeah. I was thinking individualism. I mean, I just thinking about like the climate individualism says like um, I can't solve the issue. And so I'm not going to do anything. So I think it like takes out that communal view or when I decide to not take certain actions, I guess, if that makes sense. So I was thinking about my own like hopelessness and how my, but that to me is a very individualistic place and space um, and when I get wrapped up in my own hopelessness, then I lack to take action that could help a communal stance, if that makes sense. But that applies to like many issues, not just one I realized, but I was just thinking about just coming out of kids message with that.
0: And also uh, looking at you all responding and what ways have you seen it? I mean, one of the things that I've been witnessing and I, um, even though I'd rather be together in person if we were able to this morning as a church, I love in that online church, we we get to all corporately see the ways that we care for one another. Getting to see how we can care for Joanne, how we can care for Kristen, whose whole town burned down um, and is joining with us this morning, how we can care for Marilyn, who's being reminded of the loss of her son this weekend, how we can see and care for one another um, corporately is, is a, a reminder of this is what church can be um, and should be. And so uh, not so much the way I, I think when we're we're not in a shared space, where we're not in a level playing field, where we can all hear one another's voices, that's where I think individualism fights against that communal. It's it's kind of beautiful to see us all engaging this morning.
2: Andrea shared about um, a big and obvious example right now, it's people who don't feel particularly susceptible to COVID making choices that may Result in the virus spreading to others who are more vulnerable. So, that individualistic concept yeah. around that versus communal. Yeah,
0: it's hard. Mm-hmm. Super yeah. tricky. Yeah.
2: Um, we also see Allison Johnson's individualism enables complacency and apathy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of that thought process through what it looks like, what that means, right? Specific versus like kind of conceptually what that looks like.
0: Well, Harriet, did you want to lead us in to the Book of Acts?
2: Okay, we're ready. We're ready. (laughs) All right,
1: Uh, debating whether to talk really fast to get through all my stuff or just like, okay, (laughs) we'll see. Got a lot to that I'd like to say. Um, Well, this morning, so we're going to we're going to start this journey now of working through the Book of Acts. and uh, the stories that we're going to unpack in the next eight weeks, and they're not going to be the whole book, we've got, you know, selected eight stories, it's going to be pretty obvious, you know, that the church is evolving, um, that it's adapting, and then figuring out things as they go along, right? So there, it's there's some decisions that have to be made as they, as they realize, okay, something's not working here, what do we need to do to change? But the one thing I want to just... Uh, Keep in mind is that Acts is also not a blueprint. Okay, it's not a blueprint on how to do church, <laughs> as if they nailed it by the time we get to the end of Acts, because they didn't. <laughs> We're still evolving. We're still trying to figure it out. It's a story though that gives us a glimpse into how um, this small group of people who became large <laughs> pretty quickly, but it's it's how they lived out the values of the kingdom in their particular context. Some things are going to be transferable, and there are some things that are not going to be transferable. Now, um, I, I kind of want to make a, a, an observation, because I was listening to uh, Governor Brown a couple days ago. She was given an update on the fires, and she commented how proud she was for the Oregonians and how they were taking care of each other. And you know what? The, we're We're acting like church. We're all acting like church, whether you claimed to be Christian or not, uh, that's a Christian value. And and to care for those half million that have been displaced by fire is acting like church. Um, So from the ancient text then, um, the best thing I think that we can do is ask some good questions, um, some tough questions too, so that we can critique our current church um, culture um, and then envision what it can be or how we can do church better. Um, What was happening in Acts? (laughs) I think is really timely because it's looking a lot like what's happening today. We're a church in the middle of an empire that works against the purposes of God. And there's this religious system that's um, locked arms with the empire in a destructive power dynamic. Um, We're trying to figure out what faith looks like inside this empire, but I'm feeling more certain um, that finding a path through these divisive times is going to be the most important task that we have as a faith community. So let's start at the beginning in that story. Um, I'm not going to go into Acts 1 except just to summarize uh, that we have the story uh, of the ascension of Jesus, where Jesus returns back to heaven after having spent the last 40 days after his resurrection with his disciples. And so this community that's formed around him is now. Faced with this terrible reality that Jesus is physically gone, but they've been promised the Holy Spirit, which we'll take a look at here in this passage, um, which is supposed to be a really good thing. But I'm not I'm pretty sure they didn't really know what that meant. Um, All they know is they're supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit to come teach them and guide them just as uh, Jesus did. So that's what we're doing when we come to the second chapter. And it's been probably a little over a week. Since um, Jesus left them, uh, and and uh, they're now in this room with uh, this uh, filled with men and women. Uh, probably not a room. Probably I think it was like a whole house, and they're gathering in this home to wait. So, chapter two, verses one through fourteen. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya towards Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Okay, that was a mouthful, right? (laughs) Uh, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Utterly amazed, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. (laughs) And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Okay, well, if they think that he uh, is drunk, Peter might as well stand up and give the most inflammatory message ever, you know, because they think he's drunk. But before uh, we get into what he says there, I want to unpack this scene a little bit more. Um, Pentecost in Greek means the number 50, Pente 5, Pentecost 50. And for the Jewish people, it was not one day to observe, but actually seven weeks plus one day. Um, The festival started on the second day after Passover, which marked the day that um, Israel gained their freedom from slavery in Egypt. And then it culminated 49 days later in the commemoration of Moses giving the Torah or law to the people on Mount Sinai. Pentecost was um, one of three what they call pilgrimage festivals. And all Jewish males were required to travel to the temple in Jerusalem to observe the festival. This included the Jews of the diaspora or those that were dispersed around the world. So that requirement um, would explain why there were so many nations present at that time in Acts 2. It was on the day that the festival ended that the church began. The presence of the Holy Spirit, so we see it is marked by this experience of a violent wind and these little flames that I assume were kind of landed on the top of their heads. Um, that's, at least that's the way it's always pictured. But on top of that, the diverse crowd of pig- pilgrims hear their own individual languages being spoken by the disciples and they know the disciples aren't capable of that. So this is when they begin to freak out until Peter gets up to preach his first sermon. And when he's done, 3,000 of the Jewish pilgrims become followers of Jesus. So the church didn't start slow and steady. It just exploded into the world. Now, um, biblical scholars make a connection um, between Pentecost and the Old Testament story of the Tower of Babel, which we can read about in Genesis 11. And it's a story, um, some believe as, as as a myth, but a story of how nations began in human history. Some say that the event then in Acts 2 is the reversal of what happened at Babel. They went from having one shared language to having multiple languages instantly, And then they have to scatter and they form these nations because they don't understand each other. So it's like the ultimate affinity groups. At Pentecost, the scattered has reassembled and they are able to understand what the what the disciples are saying. To understand the words in their languages, except that instead of coming back to one common language, they those various languages, they're preserved. So it's actually not a, a, a complete reversal. Of Babel, in fact, some scholars see Pentecost as the climax to the story of Babel. So the coming of the Holy Spirit didn't erase each person's identity or their culture. It didn't result in assimilation or uniformity. The Holy Spirit brought the new and diverse community together under a different banner, under a new experience and identity that would supersede but it wouldn't negate their language or their culture. So when Peter gets up to preach, he first finds common ground with this diverse group, this crowd, by reaching back into the story of Israel's past. And he does that so that they can understand or so they it's explained what they're witnessing there on that day of Pentecost. And he tells them that the phenomenon that they're witnessing is connected to Joel's prophecy. So I just want to read verse 17 as part of his um, prophecy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Now, (laughs) Peter quotes some more from Joel's prophecy, but I am not going to get into it right now. Um, It has descriptions like blood and fire and billows of smoke and the sun being turned to darkness and the moon turning to blood red. And it's kind of (laughs) creepy to to realize that the timing of our chapter coincides with what's happening in our state right now. So I'm not gonna talk about the apocalypse, even if it feels like it, okay? But the passage of Joel, when it's applied to what's unfolding in Pentecost, really is this future vision of what life with God is meant to be the gathering of all peoples worshiping the God of all nations. Pentecost was really a taste of what the future could be and would be. Peter then continues on in his sermon to the heart of what he wants to say, which he later explains is the reason why this particular group of Galileans is experiencing this inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. So I want to read verses 22 to 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Okay, I don't think uh, the crowd is thinking Peter's drunk anymore, (laughs) Um, but he explains the crucifixion of Jesus as both a divine plan, um, God's act of self-giving, as well as a political act. First, it was politically expedient for the empire to kill Jesus and the Jewish leaders to help them in order to keep control and maintain order. But it was also a political act for Jesus to submit to death. God's, you know, his silence um, before his accusers and then his torture and death were acts of political resistance to the narrative that the empire and the religious leaders had created. And then his resurrection became the ultimate protest against human systems that brought death rather than flourishing for people. And now even the appearance of the Holy Spirit could be seen as a political statement, a visible challenge to the power of the empire and a challenge to the nationalism of Israel. The center of faith would no longer be Jerusalem, but Christ, and Christ was wherever the Holy Spirit was present and working. Later on in Acts, the biggest challenge to Jewish nationalism and exceptionalism came with the inclusion of Gentiles in God's kingdom and in the church and not just their inclusion but their equality with the Jewish believers. This equality was rooted in in equal access to this God of all nations while at the same time preserving both the Jewish culture and the gentile culture. In his commentary um, on Acts, Willie James Jennings, um, he's a professor of systematic theology and African studies at Yale Divinity commented on the problem of nationalism. I just want to read this, these few sentences. He said, nationalism remains a powerful way of imagining life together because it is a theological vision that mimics the desire of God for our full communion with each other. It's a communion without God or God simply used as a slogan. This is why nationalism for us moderns is the first idolatry, because it places another God before God, big G. It places a God bound to our nation over the God of all nations. So, the coming of the Holy Spirit um, at the end of the festival, which was full of culturally diverse pilgrims, revealed a God of all nations. The coming of the Spirit in the form of this understood speech affirmed a God who knew the particularities of each person. Jennings, in his commentary, calls it a speaking that announces familiarity, connection, and relationality. And so in a way, um, out of this divine act of protest and and, uh, what I'll call a prophetic reimagining of a future community, um, the Holy Spirit gives birth to the church. It's no longer one nation under God, but a communion of nations under God. A diverse community has received just this new collective identity that they're to live into. So the question is, how um, does this story from Acts 2 inform us today as a church? Um, what I'd like to focus on is our value of diversity and how this works if the church is communal For myself um, as part Asian i I have a very strong collective identity and it's fairly easy for me to feel um, collective responsibility within the church at the same time I'm pretty comfortable with individualism because the other part of me um, as biracial is has been, Pretty strongly conditioned by whiteness. Okay, in my reality, I'm uh, caught between the tension of being both individualistic and communal. I go kind of back and forth between the two, um, trying to figure out when each is appropriate in a proper con in its proper context. But when I read my Bible, um, especially the Book of Acts, now it appears that to be Christian is to be predominantly communal. It's the language of the Bible whose pronouns are mostly we and the plural you. It's mostly we and not I. The idea of church as communal is especially important to me when it comes to conversations around racial justice and reconciliation. I'm reading this book called *Recycling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. And the author David Swanson uh, critiques the practices of predominantly white churches and says that those practices are informed by the value of individualism um, more than people are aware. He identifies individualism as one of the main barriers to diversity. Individualism contributes and supports segregation. Individualism is the backbone of white privilege. Most non-white cultures um, are honor-shame cultures and I've talked about this quite a bit in past, you know, years that I've been here. Um, but in honor-shame cultures, the communal, communal aspect of it is the core of that culture. And a lot of, if not most non-white churches have that, that at its core being communal. So when a collective identity or responsibility is dismissed or um, ignored, those from non-majority cultures can be left vulnerable. Um, They can be hurt and disappointed and often unheard and marginalized within an individualistic church culture. So individualism is one reason non-white people often don't feel safe in white spaces. And it won't become safe unless we have a way to take collective responsibility in making collective responses to collective damage done to any group within a community. And let me say that a different way. Um, A community needs to agree to take collective responsibility and make a collective response to undo any collective damage done within that community. Individualism keeps everything private. This is usually um, appropriate if the offense is private, right? Um, But what happens in a predominantly uh, uh, individualistic community is that everything is kept private when it should be public, when it should be collectively um, addressed. And there are situations when a collective responsibility and response is needed because public damage has occurred. I I want to kind of like zoom out a bit Um, from our focus on church, and give an example from white culture in general. Some of you may have watched uh, Michelle Lang Raymond's um, chat with white folks that was back in May of this year, on May 27th. Um, You can find it on her Facebook page. It was just after George Floyd was killed. Now, Michelle is a friend of Cascade, and she's spoken at our church before. But in that video chat, her one request to her white friends was that they would feel a collective shame for what happened to Floyd. And now I didn't take that um, as the Brene Brown type of shame, but appropriate shame, which should lead to some form of, of reconciling action. But even as she expressed that desire that her friends, her white friends feel collective shame. She also, there was just this pain in her voice as she also expressed doubt that it would ever happen. And why? Because white culture does not own a collective identity of whiteness. And therefore don't take, you know, they tend to not take collective responsibility. Without collective responsibility, any effort to change an unjust system is weakened, if not nearly impossible. We could take what Michelle was talking about and apply it to a smaller church culture. And so I'm gonna offer another example. Here's my question. How should a church handle a situation when someone makes an unintentional but public racist or homophobic remark, say from the pulpit or um, uh, in a small group even. And that includes me. Because we all make mistakes. We all say things that we wish we hadn't, but we do. And when it's done publicly, public damage or collective damage is being done. And one of the first things to go is that sense of safety now for those groups within the church. If we want to be a church that is communal, then part of that means taking a look at our practices and including a path towards communal confession, um, healing, and reconciliation. One of the most um, challenging aspects of uh, this passage in Acts is the thought that no matter how strongly I may disagree with say, well, about say politics, with a group of people who identify as Christians, and I certainly have some that I'm thinking of in my group of friends and family, even though I really disagree politically, I'm still connected to them, whether by the spirit, or by the fact that we share the image of God. I'm not off the hook regarding my collective responsibility just because I might choose to disengage from them. As much as I want to be in my individualistic zone and say, forget them, (laughs) um, I think that more than ever, I need to lean into my communal side and try to remember and imagine that at the communion table, they're there right next to me or at the foot of the cross, we're all there having those times when we need to hear Jesus say, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So I wanna close by quoting Professor Jennings again, and um, I'll just end with that, it's kind of long, so if you'll just hang in there with me, but I, I think it's super powerful. The Acts of the Apostles is about aesthetics before it is about ethics. It is about a God whose weapon of choice is the divine desire placed in us by the spirit that desire has the power to press through centuries of animosity and hatred and beckon people to want one another and envision lives woven together such a life never asks people to forget their past or deny their present. But to step together into a future that will not yield to the given order of isolations, but yields to the spirit that is poured out on all flesh. Segregation is an ancient strategy for creating a world, and it continues to work because it teaches us to see the world in slices, fragmented pieces of geographic space that we may own and control. Segregationist ways of thinking and living permeate this world, including the church, dimming our sight of ourselves as creatures and our connection to other creatures, and weakening our ability to discern where and to whom the Spirit wants to lead us. We need people of faith who will yield to the Spirit in this present moment. God fills the world with God's own life. God fills the disciples of Jesus, and they speak the languages of others. God fills Gentiles as well, as they too speak words of peoples, not their own. God drives some into the lives of others for the sake of Jesus and the hope born of love. This is the book of Acts for us. Welcome to the real. That's it.
2: (laughs) Thank you for letting me share this morning. Yeah, I like that ending. Welcome to the real. Like, Mm -hmm.
0: Willie James Jennings does not mess around.
2: The bike yeah. drop. Welcome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Harriet. And uh, in full disclosure, Harriet was um, the person that instigated bringing on Acts as the Message series. And you can see right now through this message why um, Harriet felt this was so relevant. <laughs> Issues of religious systems commingling with government systems. Uh, a rise and an insistence on nationalism, the way the issues of race um, and difference plays out within community. Um, All of these things are happening in Acts. And so the main question is, well, what is the church in the midst of that? And um, we have a ton of work to do, uh, communally, collectively, uh, across the world and the nation, but certainly at Cascade and starting at Cascade. And how do we um, deprogram, I'll speak for myself, from a white-centered church that is fixated on rugged individualism? Um, and how do we say, because um, there's a way of slicing and dividing up church, um, but we don't see that in Acts, that it is more communal, it is more brought in. So it is a good, good word, Harriet. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank
1: you.